Angel Fire, New Mexico, isn't the kind of place you get to by accident. The town sits about 8,400 feet above sea level in the vast Moreno Valley, flanked on both sides by towering peaks of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. The 400-year-old town of Taos is about 30 miles to the east over a mountain pass that climbs above 9,000 feet. Santa Fe is about 100 miles to the southeast. Pueblo, Colorado is nearly 200 miles to the north, and it's a one-and-a-half-hour drive to the nearest interstate. In other words, there's no wrong turn that takes you to Angel Fire. If you're there, you probably went there on purpose. With a population of just over 1,200, this high alpine town does boast its own ski resort. In fact, the Moreno Valley looks more like Colorado than what most people picture when they think of New Mexico. If you live in Texas, Oklahoma, or Kansas and enjoy skiing, you've probably heard of Angel Fire because it's one of the closest resorts to home. And if you've ever participated in the Run for the Wall, the massive annual motorcycle ride from California to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C., you know that the central route goes right through Angel Fire. And that is no accident. Because Angel Fire, New Mexico, is the unlikely home to one of the country's very first Vietnam Veterans Memorials. And the story of the people who made it and continue to make it is worthy of your attention. Stick around. From the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund, founders of The Wall, this is Echoes of the Vietnam War. I'm your host, Michael Crone, bringing you stories of service, sacrifice, and healing from people who still feel the impact of that conflict more than 50 years later. This is episode 58, Angel Fire. This uh, was started way back in 1968. Doc was actually building a ski resort here. And his intention of the ski resort was to help uh, disabled children mm -hmm. in learning how to ski and stuff. So down this road down here. That's D.B. Herbst giving me a walking tour of the memorial complex at Angel Fire which he manages for the New Mexico Department of Veteran Services. D.B. spent 23 years in the Marine Corps. He was in boot camp when Saigon fell. Uh, I started out as a volunteer in 2009 when the state park renovated this place. I volunteered all the way up to the end of 2014. And when this position came open into 2016, I put my name in the hat and got selected so I've been here since uh, April of 2017, and I watched the key ceremony to transfer the ownership from state parks to DVS in, on July 3rd of 2017, the blessing of the uh, cemetery in 2017. I help oversee the construction of the cemetery, and my sole job is to manage this place. So in the time since you started volunteering mm -hmm. until now, mm -hmm. you've seen a lot of change mm -hmm. at this place. Yes, I have. 
Perched atop a hill overlooking the valley floor, the memorial grounds today make up one of the most complete facilities of its kind that you'll find anywhere outside of the nation's capital. You could easily spend a day here, half of it in the visitor's center. Built into the hillside, the visitor center houses one of the most thoughtfully curated museums I've ever seen. From there, you can follow any of several brick-lined paths that make up the Veterans Memorial Walkway. Each of these bricks commemorates a person who served, and they're organized so that each individual story contributes to a larger narrative that unfolds as you walk. Interestingly, this is one of the only places in the United States where South Vietnamese veterans are honored alongside their American allies. There's an actual Huey helicopter called Viking Surprise, built in 1964 and donated to the memorial in 1999 by the New Mexico National Guard. And of course, Viking Surprise comes with its own experiences in Vietnam, where it flew combat assault, resupply, and medevac missions. The State Veterans Cemetery lies at the bottom of the hill, directly under the chapel. The first veteran was buried here in 2020, and today there are about 150 souls at rest in this cemetery. Many of the run-to-the-wall riders, when they see it, instantly request to be interred here. In 2005, the state built an amphitheater so that ceremonies could be performed here, and the National Veterans Wellness and Healing Center a nonprofit that uses creative therapies to promote emotional and physical healing, is building its new retreat facility adjacent to the memorial grounds. Decorating all of this hallowed ground are stands of evergreens and aspens, gardens and fountains, sculptures and plaques, all of it thoughtfully designed to create an atmosphere of reverence and reflection. It's as beautiful as any park, but there are no picnic tables or playgrounds here. This is a place of peace and healing. And then there's the main feature of this memorial, the building that started it all, the Peace and Brotherhood Chapel. It's a gorgeous structure to look at, like a pair of delicate white paper-like curls that fell to earth in a suggestion of angel's wings. The chapel is the most visible thing on this hilltop. Everything around it was specifically designed not to compete with it. The chapel is more than just the focal point of the memorial. It's the focal point of the tragic story behind the memorial and the man who turned that personal tragedy into this public place of remembrance and healing. Victor Westfall grew up on a farm in Depression-era Wisconsin and earned a commission in the United States Navy. He served in the South Pacific Theater during World War II, and after the war, he moved to Albuquerque with his wife, Jean, and their two sons, David and Walter. There, Victor learned several building trades and established a home-building business. Despite the pressures of running the business, he managed to earn a master's degree and a PhD from the University of New Mexico. Once Victor had earned his doctorate, people began calling him Doc, and that's what he answered to for the rest of his days. In 1964, Doc and Jean sold their property in Albuquerque and bought an 800-acre ranch in Angel Fire. 
Doc planned to develop the ranch into home sites and a nine-hole golf course. By then, both of his sons were grown and in the military, David in the Marine Corps and Walter in the Air Force, and both would serve as officers during the Vietnam War. Sarah Kanafani's documentary, On This Hallowed Ground, explains what happened next. The voice you'll hear is that of Walter Westfall, the younger of Doc's two boys. On May 22, 1968, Bravo Company and other companies of the 1st Battalion, 4th Marine Regiment, engaged in a North Vietnamese Army force east of a Marine Corps combat base named Contien, just south of the demilitarized zone. 17 Marines of the 1st Battalion were killed in action. Dozens of others were wounded in action. Those killed in action included my brother, 1st Lieutenant David Westfall. On May 27, 1968, my father was on his backhoe digging a trench for a water line to the golf course that he was developing on the Valverde Ranch. He was approached by two Marines. Their duty was to tell my father that Lieutenant Westfall had been killed in Vietnam. Bravo Company, 1st Battalion, 4th Marines, had run into an L-shaped ambush set up by an NVA unit east of Contien. David Westfall, leader of the 1st Platoon and his radio operator, Lance Corporal Charles Kirkland, were among the 17 Marines killed. Eight of the dead, including Westfall and Kirkland, had to be left on the battlefield overnight. The next morning, while on an operation to retrieve the bodies of their fallen, the Marines hit back, hard. Some accounts estimate the NVA dead numbered in the hundreds. It was less than three months later, him and his wife both decide to sell all of the properties except for five acres. And the five acres is the chapel, so we'll head on over there. Doc does have a a non-denominational church here. Uh, people do have services in here. We have we have people come in here just sing, just to sing, and uh, it's quite inspiring when they do that. And you'll see people coming, sitting on the benches. And, and this chapel stays open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, because when Doc was actually building the chapel. He got it, the exterior all done. He was working on the inside. He left his tools inside, locked the door, and he went home. His home was down the hill. When he came back, he saw this piece of wood that he discarded with a note on it. Why did you lock the doors when I needed in the most? And from that time on, the doors have never been locked. To this day, they still are not locked. Wow. So you could come back at midnight and come in. A father's devastating grief is converted into a chapel dedicated to peace and brotherhood. The chapel becomes a memorial, which grows into a complex, complete with a museum, a cemetery, a healing center, in short, a comprehensive facility for remembrance and reconciliation. What more is needed? What could possibly 
make Doc's vision more complete. After the break, I'll tell you. And I'll introduce you to the veterans who've been working tirelessly against the odds for years to make it happen. Stick around. The Registry is an online community created by VVMF that connects veterans of the Vietnam War era with each other. By signing up for the Registry, you can upload and share stories and images, connect with others who served during the Vietnam era, and connect your service with people you knew whose names are now on the wall. Join the community and preserve your legacy or a family member's by signing up today at vvmf.org registry. Hi. I'm Anne Margaret. I went to Vietnam to entertain the troops in 1966 and 1968. My guys, my gentlemen, if you lived through the Vietnam War era, you know the impact that the war had. But today, we are in danger of history being lost. Current generations know very little about the war or the people who served As more of our Vietnam vets pass away each day, their stories are being lost to history. Together, we can change that. The Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund is the organization that built the wall. It works to ensure that future generations will understand the war's impact. Let's help keep the promise that the wall was built on. Never forget. Visit vvmf.org to find out how you can get involved. On Veterans Day 1996, VVMF unveiled an exact replica of the wall that could be packed into an 18-wheeler and hauled to cities and towns all across America. Since then, the wall that heals has been displayed in nearly 700 communities throughout the nation, spreading the healing legacy of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial to millions of visitors. If you want to know more about this traveling exhibit and the impact it can have on a community, check out episode 15 of this podcast. The Wall That Heals and the Mobile Education Center that travels with it will be in Gibsonburg, Ohio, August 31 through September 3, and Sanford, Maine, September 7 through 10. To see the rest of this year's tour schedule and to learn how you can bring The Wall That Heals to your town, visit vvmf.org. When the Peace and Brotherhood Chapel was dedicated in Angel Fire on May 22, 1971, the third anniversary of David Westfall's death, Doc told a newspaper that it was a gift to mankind with no strings attached. He added, but I don't know what man will do with it. Doc's vision for the Vietnam Veterans Memorial at Angel Fire continued to develop right up until his passing in 2003 at the age of 89. What man did with it, well, that is Doc's legacy. And as it turns out, man isn't quite finished yet. There are several men, in fact, working to complete Doc's vision by building a half-scale replica of the wall on the memorial grounds at Angel Fire. One of those men is Jerry Martinez, vice president of VVA's Northern New Mexico Chapter 996. 
Back in 1972, when I was still in high school, I volunteered to go into the United States Marine Corps. Uh, that was April, uh, first thing in June after graduation. I was on my way to boot camp. So after 1972 boot camp, I served till 1976 on active duty. I was stationed in Okinawa for 13 months at the time. During that time, we got on the ships with the Navy ships and went on amphibious landing training uh, through the Philippines, uh, uh, Singapore, and we ended up offshore Vietnam in 1974. Uh, things were toned down about that time, but we were ready for landing if needed. Uh, and then 76 to 78, I was the, with the inactive reserve. After that, I got out. I served in law enforcement in New Mexico. And then I decided, why not go back in the military? So I joined the New Mexico Army National Guard on active duty. Due to my promotion and rank, I had to seek other military service. I ended up with the Army Reserve on active duty in the state of Ohio. After 26 years of active duty, I was finally retired out of Fort Knox, Kentucky, into law enforcement for a couple of years. And then after that, I got a military disability. I have been working with various veteran organizations. Jerry has been involved in a great many veterans initiatives, from helping New Mexico become the first state to complete its Wall of Faces, to bringing the Wall that Heals to Santa Fe, to trying to get a permanent version of the wall to the state capitol. After a few failed attempts to acquire existing replicas, the idea finally evolved to build one from scratch, an exact replica of the one in DC, right down to the black granite, but half the size. So we contacted Department of Veteran Services and John Garcia was the secretary at that time. He said, why don't you guys think of getting a wall up in Angel Fire? Mm. It clicked and we all agreed, hey, that'd be great. I bet you we would have a lot of cooperation. So, so we started on that and uh, we agreed that we would fundraise. Our chapter would fundraise. And when we met with the Department of Veteran Services, they said, yes, we can get you a place up at Angel Fire for the wall once it's completed. And we took it upon ourselves also to talk to uh, uh, Walter Westphal, mm -hmm. the surviving son of Dr. Westphal. And I spoke to him. And I may have caught him by surprise, but he said, sure, I don't see any problem with that. So our chapter was able to collect 56,000 out of the 106. But lo and behold, in 2000, uh, what was it, 21, when the COVID hit, our uh, fundraising dwindled, it went down, it went down. So our next plan of attack was, let's go to the governor, uh, Michelle Lebron Grisham. Before we started talking, the governor said, wait a minute, before we start anything, I want you guys to know, I know what you want. I don't think it's right 
for you veterans to go out there doing fundraising when our state has money to support you. So she came back and she said, whatever you need, the 50,000 is yours. So that completed our mission there where we had the money that we needed for our part of the agreement, mm -hmm. paying the contractor in Albuquerque, getting all the panels and the vector file with all the names. Now we're waiting on the Department of Veteran Services to build us a base wall. So just to recap, New Mexico's Department of Veteran Services, DVS, had agreed to provide space at Angel Fire for a permanent replica of the wall. VVA Chapter 996 had raised half the money they needed to build it, and the governor had promised to kick in the other half. But the land at Angel Fire is managed by DVS, who still had to prepare the ground and build the foundation on which the wall would sit. My name is uh, Edward Mendez, and I am the uh, division director for the Department of Veterans Services uh, here in the state of New Mexico. Uh, I run state benefits. Uh, I also run the cemeteries and the memorial uh, programs for the Department of Veterans Services. I am a, a Navy veteran, retired from the Navy. Are you from New Mexico originally? I absolutely am. I was born and raised in Albuquerque. And then when I joined the military, I was stationed in San Diego for 10 years. I was stationed in uh, uh, Texas uh, for five years. And then my last four and a half, five years was here in the state of New Mexico. So you came back home? Came back home. Ed is the guy making sure that when New Mexico's wall is ready, the ground at Angel Fire will be ready to support it. It seems that everyone involved at every level is compelled to throw their full support behind this initiative. Doc's legacy is that compelling. But Ed has a deep personal connection to the cause of Vietnam veterans. I love talking about my brother. It's just tough. When I talk about him, I get choked up. His name was Luis A. Mendez. He was a sergeant uh, in the Army uh, 7th Cav, uh, the Air Cav. Um, he was a <clears throat> Bronze Star winner, uh, Silver Star winner with a V for Valor uh, because of his uh, heroism uh, in Vietnam. So um, to me, he was my hero. Definitely my hero. We come from a family of seven. So he was the oldest and I was the youngest. So when I was five, he was 17, and that's when he joined. So he was 18 when I was six. My parents got divorced when I was uh, very young. So he was my father figure, you know, and I looked to him. Uh, I looked up to him. About his Vietnam service, uh, do you know what years he was there? He was there. Uh, he graduated in 69. So he was there in 69 and 70. Uh, he did two tours uh, and for somebody to just do one tour, you know, but he went back and did a second tour. Uh, and like I said, he was very highly decorated as did, you know, most individuals from the state of New Mexico were very highly decorated. Um, so, yeah, he, you know, to earn, earn a bronze star and a, a silver star uh, is no, you know, small feat. Uh, and then to earn that with a V for Valor cluster on that, uh, Silver Star means that you did something. And I have his articles um, that talk about, you know, his certificate and how he won it uh, with no regard for his own life. Luis Mendez passed away in 2014 as a result of his exposure to Agent Orange more than 40 years earlier. His service to me was something 
monumental. Of course, at that time, I didn't know what Vietnam was. Uh, I was just a young five, six-year-old boy. Uh, but I saw him in his uniform, and it, it to me, it commanded so much respect. And then after that, once I grew up, and then once I joined the military, um, I found that to be something to admire. So uh, the first chance I got to see the memorial, I took my family to Washington, D.C., I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. And it was just overwhelming, just completely overwhelming. And that was a story that I, I uh, shared with him before he passed away. And I know he went to see it as well. So it was just a, a kind of a bonding between myself and my brother. And I'm really, really proud of our efforts, the, the agency's efforts to start the construction. And I will tell you, as of this point right now, we have our construction crews mobilizing on those grounds right now, turning dirt to get that wall built. In a few months, the ground will be too hard and under too much snow for crews to complete the project. Ed estimates that the wall will be complete sometime in the spring. If you can get there for the grand opening ceremony, I would highly recommend it. I sat down with DB one final time to help me put all of this into perspective. So you've got the chapel, you've got the, ce the cemetery, you've got the Huey, you've got the bricks, you've got the museum. You know, it's, it's already a lot. What does the addition of a wall mean to you? It's, it's the end of the circle that docks vision. It's the end. It's, uh, it's not only Doc was honoring the living, but he's also remembering those who sacrifice. Uh, but it will finish that circle of who we're honoring, who we're remembering. And like I said, it's just going to finish that connection. Yeah, I think, I mean, the other thing that I think it will do is, you know, you have so much emphasis on healing here, right? That's what the chapel is yes. all about. That's why yes. it's open 24 hours. You know, that's why there's a wellness center nearby. Mm -hmm. Um It has surprised me the times that I've seen that happen at the wall, uh -huh. either at the wall in D.C. or at the wall that heals on the road. Yeah. When I watch a Vietnam veteran just connect, uh, it's, a, it's a powerful moment. I know you talked about some of the reasons why you're putting it down by the wellness center. Mm -hmm. But honestly, that's exactly the right place for it. And it is, it really is. It's in front of the wellness center. Uh, and it won't be seen from the highway until you get up on the hill. So the impact is a lot, is a lot better. Yeah. Uh, because you're not seeing it off in the distance. You don't get a chance distance. to approach it. Yeah. It's, you're there. You're, you're there. And yeah. it's, it's right there across from the, the chapel that is for the brotherhood, the healing. So once you finish the wall, you got a place to go and reflect. You got a place to go sit down and maybe tell your story to your loved ones. I had an incident with a father and son. They were riding their motorcycles around the United States. They came here. Father came in and started talking to his son about his time in Vietnam. And I walked up to him. I says, sir, welcome home. Is this your son? Yes. Thank you for supporting your father. I said, without your support, your dad can't be doing this today. And it opened up a door for his father to talk to him more on their trip back to California. And I got a phone call 
couple of days later, once they got back to California, that the father thanked me for opening that door. So that's what this place is, is opening the doors for the parents to talk to their children or the par or parents to talk to their spouses about things that, that happened to them that they couldn't talk about in normal life. Right. For decades. For decades. Yeah. I instill in my employees to make sure you welcome every Vietnam vet home and tell them this is their home. And that's the way we are. This is why this is sacred grounds to our Vietnam veterans. Is a father who lost a son, who understood the pain and the anguish, who also served, would create a facility that will welcome them home, a facility that will help them heal, is why this place is here. We're so grateful to DB and Jerry and Ed for sharing this amazing story with us. There were several others whose voices you didn't hear, but whose contributions to this episode were absolutely essential. They include Chuck Howe, Ernie Sutliff, Jake Lopez, Roger Blanco, Donnie Quintana, my colleagues Jim Knotts and Tim Tates, indirectly, and Chief Red Eagle Rael, who will be the subject of his own episode in the not-too-distant future. And, as ever, we're grateful to you for listening and for sharing. We'll be back in two weeks with more stories of service, sacrifice, and healing. See you then.